Badger Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. With no further ado, because I really, really, really want to get into this book. Here's Chapter 8 of The Phantom Tollbooth, The Humbug Volunteers. Well, before we get into it, 916-633-1537 to leave a voicemail. Um, you can email us at wretched and ratchet at gmail.com. Uh, you can leave a five-star review wherever you listen to the podcast at. That helps us get more exposure to other uh, potential listeners. Um, you could talk to us and follow us on Twitter at Ratchet Book Club. And please just let your friends know about the show. Let us know what you think about the books we're reading. If y'all don't like these books, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not going to stop reading The Phantom Tollbooth, though, because I really enjoyed this book. And so, with no further ado, Chapter 8, The Humbug Volunteers. Couldn't eat another thing, puffed the Duke, clutching his stomach. Oh, my. Oh, dear, agreed the minister, breathing with great difficulty. <laughs> Mumbled the Earl, desperately trying to swallow another mouthful. Thoroughly stuffed, sighed the Count, loosening his belt. Full up, grunted the undersecretary, reaching for a last cake. As everyone finished, the only sounds to be heard were the creaking of chairs, the pushing of plates, the licking of spoons, and of course, a few words from the humbug. A delightful repast, delicately prepared and elegantly served, he announced to no one in particular. A feast of rare bouquet. My compliments to the chef. By all means, my compliments to the chef. Then... With the most distressed look on his face, he turned to Milo and gasped, Would you kindly fetch me a glass of water? I seem to have a touch of indigestion. Perhaps you've eaten too much too quickly, Milo remarked sympathetically. Too much too quickly, too much too quickly, wheezed the uncomfortable bug between gulps. To be sure, too much too quickly. I certainly should have eaten too little too slowly or too much too slowly, or too little too quickly, or taken all day to eat nothing, or eaten everything in no time at all, or occasionally eaten something any time, or perhaps I should have. And he toppled back, exhausted into his chair, and continued to mumble indistinctly. Attention! Let me have your attention, insisted the king, leaping to his feet and pounding the table. The command was entirely unnecessary, for the moment he began to speak, everybody but Milo, Tock, and the distraught bug rushed from the hall, down the stairs, and out of the palace. Loyal subjects and friends continued his ass, his voice echoing in the almost empty room. Once again, on this gala occasion, we have... Pardon me, coughed Milo as politely as possible. But everybody's gone. I was hoping no one would notice, said the king sadly. It happens every time. They've all gone to dinner, announced the humbug weakly. And just as soon as I catch my breath, I shall join them. That's ridiculous. How can I eat dinner right after a banquet, asked Milo. Scandalous, shouted the king. We'll put a stop to it at once. From now on, by royal command, everybody must eat dinner before the banquet. 
but that's just as bad, protested Milo. You mean just as good, corrected the humbug. Things which are equally bad are also equally good. Try to look at the bright side of things. I don't know which side of anything to look at, protested Milo. Everything is so confusing and all your words only make things worse. How true, said the unhappy king, resting his regal chin on his royal fist as he thought fondly of the old days. There must be something we can do about it. Pass a law, the humbug suggested brightly. We have almost as many laws as words, grumbled the king. Offer reward, offered the bug again. The king shook his head and looked sadder and sadder. Send for help. Drive a bargain. Pull the switch. File a brief. Lower the boom. Tow the line. Raise the bridge. Bar the door, shouted the bug, jumping up and down and waving his arms. Then he promptly sat down as the king glanced furiously in his direction. Perhaps you might allow rhyme and reason to return, said Milo softly, for he had been waiting for just an opportunity to suggest it. How nice that would be, said Azaz, straightening up and adjusting his crown. Even if they were a bother at times, things always went so well when they were here. As he spoke, he leaned back on the throne, clasped his hands behind his head, and stared thoughtfully at the ceiling. But I'm afraid it can't be done. Certainly not. It can't be done, repeated the humbug. Why not? asked Milo. Yes, why not indeed? exclaimed the bug, who seemed equally at home on either side of an argument. Much too difficult, replied the king. Of course, emphasized the bug, it's much too difficult. You could if you really wanted to, insisted Milo. By all means, if you really wanted to, you could, the humbug agreed. How? asked his ass, glaring at the bug. Yes, how? inquired Milo, looking at the same bug. A simple task, began the humbug, suddenly wishing he were somewhere else. For a brave lad with a stout heart, a steadfast dog, and a serviceable small automobile. Go on, commanded the king. Yes, please, seconded Milo. All that he would have to do, continued the worried bug, is travel through miles of harrowing and hazardous countryside in the unknown valleys and uncharted forests, past yawning chasms and trackless wastes, until he reached Digitopolis, if, of course, he ever reached there. Then, he would have to convince the math magician to agree to release the little princesses. And, of course, he'd never agree to agree to anything that you agreed with. And anyway, if he did, you certainly wouldn't agree to it. From there, it's a simple matter of entering the mountains of ignorance, full of perilous pitfalls and ominous overtones, a land to which many venture but few return, and whose evil demons slither slowly from peak to peak in search of prey. Then, an effortless climb up a 2,000-step circular stairway without railings in a high-winded night, for in those mountains it's always night, to the castle in the air.
He paused momentarily for a breath and then began again. After a pleasant chat with the princesses, all that remains is to leisurely ride back to those chaotic crags whose frightening fiends have sworn to tear any intruder limb from limb and devour them from down to its belt buckle. And finally, after the long ride back, a triumphal parade, if, of course, there's anything left to parade, followed by hot chocolate and cookies for everybody. The humbug bowed low and sat down once again, very pleased with himself. I never realized it could be so simple, said the king, stroking his beard and smiling broadly. Quite simple indeed, concurred the bug. It sounds dangerous to me, said Milo. Most dangerous, most dangerous, mumbled the humbug, still trying to be in agreement with everybody. Who will make the journey? asked Tok, who had been listening very carefully to the humbug's description. A very good question, replied the king, but there is one far more serious problem. What is it? asked Milo, who was rather unhappy at the turn the conversation had taken. I'm afraid I can only tell you that when you return, cried the king, clapping his hands three times. As he did so, the waiters rushed back into the room and quickly cleared away the dishes, the silver, the tablecloth, the table, the chairs, the banquet hall, and the palace, leaving them all suddenly standing in the marketplace. Of course, you realize that I would like to make the trip myself, continued his ass, striding across the square as if nothing had happened. But since it was your idea, you shall have all the honor of fame. But you see, began Milo. Dictionopolis will always be grateful, my boy, interrupted the king, throwing one arm around Milo and patting Tock with the other. You will face many dangers on your journey, but fear not, for I brought you this for your protection. He drew from inside his cape a small heavy box about the size of a school book and handed it ceremoniously to Milo. In this box are all the words I know, he said. Most of them you'll never need. Some of them you'll use constantly, but with them you may ask all the questions which have never been answered and answer all the questions which have never been asked. All the great books of the past and all the ones yet to come are made with these words. With them there is no obstacle you cannot overcome. All you must learn to do is use them well and in the right places. Milo accepted the gift with thanks, and the little group walked to the car, still parked at the edge of the square. You will, of course, need a guide, said the king. And since he knows the obstacle so well, the humbug is cheerfully volunteered to accompany you. Now see here, cried the startled bug, for that was the last thing in the world that he wanted to do. You'll find him dependable, brave, resourceful, and loyal continued his ass, and the humbug was so overcome by the flattery that he quite forgot to object again. I'm sure he'll be a great help, cried Milo as they drove across the square. I hope so, thought Tock to himself, for he was far less sure. Good luck, good luck, do be careful, shouted the king, and down the road they went. Milo and Tock wondered what strange adventures lay ahead. The humbug speculated on how he'd ever become involved in such a hazardous undertaking. And the crowd waved and cheered wildly, for, while they didn't care at all about anyone arriving, they were always very pleased to see someone go. Chapter 9 It's all in how you look at things.
Soon all traces of Dictionopolis have vanished in the distance, and all those strange and unknown lands that lay between the kingdom of words and the kingdom of numbers stretched before them. It was late afternoon, and the dark orange sun floated heavily over the distant mountains. A friendly, cool breeze slapped playfully at the car, and the long shadows stretched out lazily from the trees and bushes. Ah, the open road, exclaimed the humbug, breathing deeply, for he now seemed happily resigned to the trip. The spirit of adventure, the lore of the unknown, the thrill of a gallant quest. How very grand indeed. Then, pleased with himself, he folded his arms, sat back, and left it at that. A few more minutes they had left the open countryside and driven into a dense forest. This is a scenic route, straight ahead to point of view, announced a rather large road sign, but contrary to a statement, all that could be seen was more trees. As the car rushed along, the trees grew thicker and taller and taller and leafier until, just as they hid in the sky completely, the forest abruptly ended and the road bent itself around a broad promontory. Stretching below, to the left, the right, and straight ahead, as far as anyone could see, lay the rich green landscape through which they had been traveling. Remarkable view, announced the humbug, bouncing from the car as if he were responsible for the whole thing. Isn't it beautiful? gasped Milo. Oh, I don't know, answered a strange voice. It's all in the way you look at things. I beg your pardon, said Milo, for he didn't see who had spoke. I said, it's all in how you look at things, repeated the voice. Milo turned around and found himself staring at two very neatly polished brown shoes, for standing directly in front of him, if you can use the word standing for anyone suspended in midair, was another boy, just about his age, whose feet were easily three feet off the ground. For instance continued the boy. If you happen to like deserts, you might not think this beautiful at all. That's true, said the humbug, who didn't like to contradict anyone whose feet were that far off the ground. For instance, said the boy again, if Christmas trees were people, and people were Christmas trees, we'd all be chopped down, put up in the living room, and covered with tinsel, while the trees opened our presents. What does that have to do with it? asked Milo. Nothing at all, he answered, but it's an interesting possibility, don't you think? How do you manage to stand up there? asked Milo, for this was a subject which most interested him. I was about to ask you a similar question, answered the boy, for you must be much older than you look to be standing on the ground. What do you mean? Milo asked. Well, said the boy, in my family everyone's born in the air with his head at exactly the height he's going to be when he's an adult. And then we all grow towards the ground. When we're fully grown up, or, as you can see, grown down, our feet finally touch. Of course, there are a few of us whose feet never reach the ground no matter how old we get. But I suppose it's the same in every family. He hopped a few steps in the air, skipped back to where he started, and then began again. You certainly must be very old to have reached the ground already. Oh, no, said Milo seriously. In my family, we all start on the ground and grow up, and we never know how far until we actually get there. What a silly system, the boy laughed.
Then your head keeps changing its height and you always see things in a different way? Why, when you're 15, things won't look at all the way they did when you were 10. And at 20, everything will change all over again. Yeah, I suppose so, replied Milo, for he had never really thought about the matter. We always see things from the same angle, the boy continued. It's much less trouble that way. Besides, it makes more sense to grow down and not up. When you're very young, you can never hurt yourself falling down if you're in midair. And you certainly can't get in trouble for scuffing up your shoes or marking the floor if there's nothing to scuff them on and the floor is three feet away. That's very true, thought Tock, who wondered how the dogs in the family liked the arrangement. But there are many other ways to look at things, remarked the boy. For instance, you had orange juice, boiled eggs, toast and jam, and milk for breakfast, he said, turning to Milo. And you are always worried about people wasting time, he said to Tock. And you are almost never right about anything, he said, pointing to the humbug. And when you are, it's usually an accident. A gross exaggeration, protested the furious bug, who didn't realize that so much was visible to the naked eye. Amazing, gasped Tock. How did you know all that? asked Milo. Simple, he said proudly. I'm Alex Bings. I see through things. I can see whatever's inside, behind, around, covered by, or subsequent to anything else. In fact, the only thing I can't see is whatever happens to be right in front of my own nose. Isn't that a little inconvenient? asked Milo, whose neck was becoming quite stiff from looking up. It is a little, replied Alex, but it's quite important to know what lies behind things, and the family helps me take care of the rest. My father sees the things. My mother looks after things. My brother sees beyond things. My uncle sees the other side of every question. And my little sister Alice sees under things. How can she see under things if she's all the way up there? growled the humbug. Well, added Alex, turning a neat cartwheel, whatever she can't see under, she overlooks. Would it be possible for me to see something from up there? asked Milo politely. You could, said Alex, but only if you try very hard to look at things that an adult does. Milo tried as hard as he could, and, as he did, his feet floated slowly off the ground until he was standing in the air next to Alex Bings. He looked around very quickly and, an instant later, crashed back down to earth again. Interesting, wasn't it? asked Alex. Yes. It was, agreed Milo, rubbing his head and dusting himself off. But I think I'll continue to see things as a child. It's not so far to fall. A wise decision, at least for the time being, said Alex. Everyone should have his own point of view. Isn't this everyone's point of view? asked Tock, looking around curiously. Of course not, replied Alex, sitting himself down on nothing. It's only mine, and you certainly can't look at things from somebody else's point of view. For instance, from here, that looks like a bucket of water, he said, pointing to a bucket of water. But from an ant's point of view, it's a vast ocean. From an elephant, it's just a cool drink. And to a fish, of course, it's home. So, you see, the way you see things depends a great deal on where you look at them from. Now... Come along and I'll show you the rest of the forest. 
He ran quickly through the air, stopping occasionally to beckon Milo, Tock, and the humbug along, and they followed as well as anyone who had to stay on the ground could. Does everyone here grow the way that you do? Puck Milo when he had caught up. Almost everyone, replied Alex, and then he stopped a moment and thought. Now and then, though, someone does begin to grow differently. Instead of down, their feet grow up towards the sky. But we do our best to discourage awkward things like that. What happens to them? insisted Milo. Oddly enough, they often grow ten times the size of everyone else, said Alex thoughtfully. And I've heard they walk amongst the stars. And with that, he skipped off once again towards the waiting woods. Chapter 10 A Colorful Symphony As they ran, tall trees closed in around them and arched gracefully towards the sky. The late afternoon sunlight leaped lightly from leaf to leaf, slid along branches and down trunks, and dropped finally down to the ground in warm, luminous patches. A soft glow filled the air with the kind of light that made everything look sharp and clear and close enough to reach out and touch. Alex raced ahead, laughing and shouting, but soon encountered serious difficulties, for, while he could always see the tree behind the next one, he could never see the next one himself and was continuously crashing into it. After several minutes of wildly dashing about, they all stopped for a breath of air. I th think we're lost, panted the humbug, collapsing into a large berry bush. Nonsense, shouted Alex from the high branch on which he had sat. Do you know where we are? asked Milo. Certainly, he replied. We're right here on this very spot. Besides, being lost is never a matter of not knowing where you are. It's a matter of not knowing where you aren't. And I don't care at all about where I'm not. This is much too complicated for the bug to figure out, and Milo had just begun repeating it to himself when Alex said, If you don't believe me, ask the giant. And he pointed to the small house tucked neatly between two of the largest trees. Milo and Tuck walked up to the door whose brass nameplate read simply, The Giant, and knocked. Good afternoon, said the perfectly ordinary-sized man who answered the door. Are you the giant? asked Tot doubtfully. To be sure, he replied proudly. I'm the smallest giant in the world. What can I do for you? Are we lost? said Milo. That is a difficult question, said the giant. Why don't you go around back and ask a little person? And he closed the door. They walked to the rear of the house, which looked exactly like the front, and knocked at the door, whose nameplate read, The Little Person. How are you? inquired the man, who looked exactly like the giant. Are you the little person? asked Tock again, with a hint of uncertainty in his voice. Unquestionably, he answered, I'm the tallest little person in the world. May I help you? Do you think we're lost? repeated Milo. That's a very complicated problem, he said. Why don't you go around to the side and ask the fat man? And he, too, quickly disappeared. The side of the house looked very much like the front and the back, 
and the door flew open the instant they knocked. How nice of you to come by, exclaimed the man, who could have been the little person's twin brother. You must be the fat man, said Tock, learning not to count too much on appearance. The thinnest one in the world, he replied brightly, but if you have any questions, I suggest you try the thin man on the other side of the house. Just as they suspected, the other side of the house looked the same as the front, the back, and the side, and the door was again answered by a man who looked precisely like the other three. What a pleasant surprise, he cried happily. I haven't had a visitor in as long as I can remember. How long is that? asked Milo. I'm, I'm sure I don't know, he replied. Now pardon me, I have to answer the door. But you just did, said Tock. Oh, yes, I'd forgotten. Are you the fattest thin man in the world? asked Tock. Do you know one that's fatter? He asked impatiently. I think you're all the same man, said Milo emphatically. Shh, he cautioned, putting his finger up to his lips and drawing Milo closer. Do you want to ruin everything? You see, to tall men, I'm a little person. And to short men, I'm a giant. To the skinny ones, I'm a fat man. And to the fat ones, I'm a thin man. That way, I can hold four jobs at once. As you can see, though, I'm neither tall, nor short, nor fat, nor thin. In fact, I'm quite ordinary. But there are so many ordinary men that no one asks their opinion about anything. Now, what is your question? Are we lost? Asked Milo once again. Hmm, said the man, scratching his head. I haven't had such a difficult question in as long as I can remember. Would you mind repeating it? It slipped my mind. Milo asked the question again. My, my, the man mumbled. I know one thing for certain. It's much harder to tell whether you are lost than whether you were lost. For on many occasions, where you're going is exactly where you are. On the other hand, you often find that where you've been is not at all where you should have gone. And since it's much more difficult to find your way back from somewhere you've never left, I suggest you go there immediately and then decide. If you have any more questions, please ask the giant and he slammed his door and pulled down the shade. I hope you're satisfied, said Alex when they returned from the house, and he bounced to his feet, bent down to awaken the snoring humbug, and started off, more slowly this time, in the direction of a large clearing. Do many people live here in the forest? asked Milo as they trotted along together. Oh, yes. They live in a wonderful city called Reality, he announced, smashing into one of the smaller trees and sending a cascade of nuts and leaves to the ground. It's right this way. In a few more steps, the forest opened before them, and off to the left, a magnificent metropolis appeared. The rooftops shone like mirrors, the walls glistened with thousands of precious stones, and the broad avenues were paved in silver. Is that it? shouted Milo, running towards the shining streets. Oh no. That's just illusions, said Alex. The real city is over there. 
What are illusions? Milo asked, for it was the loveliest city he'd ever seen. Illusions, explained Alex, are like mirages. And realizing that this didn't help much, he continued, And mirages are things that aren't really there that you can see very clearly. How can you see something that isn't there? Yawned the humbug, who wasn't fully awake yet. Sometimes it's much simpler than seeing things that are, he said. For instance, if something is there, you can only see it with your eyes open. But if it isn't there, you can see it just as well with your eyes closed. That's why imaginary things are often easier to see than real ones. Then where's reality, barked Tuck. Right here, cried Alex, waving his arms. You're standing in the middle of Main Street. They looked around very carefully. Tuck sniffed suspiciously at the wind, and the humbug gingerly stabbed his cane in the air, but there was nothing at all to see. It's really a very pleasant city, said Alex as he strolled down the street, pointing out several of the sights which didn't seem to be there, and tipping his cap to the passerbys. There were great crowds of people rushing along with their heads down, and they all appeared to know exactly where they were going as they darted down and around the non-existent streets and in and out of the missing buildings. I, I don't see any city, said Milo very softly. Neither do they, Alex remarked sadly. But it hardly matters, for they don't miss it at all. It must be very difficult to live in a city you can't see, Milo insisted, jumping aside as a line of cars and trucks went by. Not at all, once you get used to it, said Alex. But let me tell you how it happened. And, as they strolled along the bustling and busy avenue, he began. Many years ago, on this very spot, there was a beautiful city of fine houses and inviting spaces, and no one who lived there was ever in a hurry. The streets were full of wonderful things to see, and the people would often stop to look at them. Didn't they have any place to go? asked Milo. To be sure, continued Alex, but... As you know, the most important reason from going from one place to another is to see what's in between, and they took great pleasure in doing just that. Then, one day, someone discovered that if you walked as fast as possible and looked at nothing but your shoes, you would arrive at your destination much more quickly. Soon, everyone was doing it. They all rushed down the avenues and hurried along the boulevards, seeing nothing of the wonders and beauties that our city as they went. Milo remembered the many times he had done the very same thing, and, as hard as he tried, there were even things on his own street that he couldn't remember. No one paid any attention to how things looked, and as they moved faster and faster, everything grew uglier and dirtier, and as everything grew uglier and dirtier, they moved faster and faster, and at last a very strange thing began to happen. Because nobody cared, the city slowly began to disappear. Day by day, the city's buildings grew fainter and fainter, and the streets faded away, until at last it was entirely invisible. There was nothing to see at all. What did they do? The humbug inquired, suddenly taking an interest in things. Nothing at all, continued Alex. They went right on living here, just as they always done, in the houses they could no longer see, and on the streets which had vanished, because nobody had noticed a thing. And that's the way they've lived to this very day. Hasn't anyone told them? Asked Milo. It doesn't do any good, 
Alice replied, for they can never see what they're in too much of a hurry to look for. Why don't they live in illusions, suggested the humbug. It's much prettier. Many of them do, Alice answered, walking in the direction of the forest once again. But it's just as bad to live in a place where what you do see isn't there, as it is to live in one where what you don't see is. Perhaps someday you can have one city as easy to see as illusions, and as hard to forget as reality, Milo remarked. That will only happen when you bring back rhyme and reason, said Alex, smiling, for he has seen right through Milo's plans. Now, let's hurry or we'll miss the evening concert. They followed him quickly up a flight of steps which couldn't be seen and through a door which didn't exist. In a moment, they had left reality, which is sometimes a hard thing to tell, and stood in a completely different part of the forest. The sun was dropping slowly from sight, and stripes of purple and orange and crimson and gold piled themselves on top of the distant hills. The last shafts of light waited patiently for a flight of wrens to find their way home, and a group of anxious stars had already taken their places. Here we are, cried Alex, and, with a sweep of his arm, he pointed towards an enormous symphony orchestra. Isn't it a grand sight? There were at least a thousand musicians ranged in a great arc before them. To the left and right were the violins and cellos, whose bows moved in great waves, and behind them in numberless profusion, the piccolos, flutes, clarinets, oboes, bassoons, horns, trumpets, trombones, and tubas were all playing at once. At the very rear, so far away that they could hardly be seen, were the percussion instruments, and lastly, in a long line up one side of a steep slope, were the solemn bass fiddles. On a high podium in front stood the conductor, a tall, gaunt man with dark, deep-set eyes and a thin mouth placed carelessly between his long-pointed nose and his long-pointed chin. He used no baton, but conducted with large sweeping movements which seemed to start at his toes and work slowly up through his body and along his slender arms and, and finally at the tips of his graceful fingers. I don't hear any music, said Milo. That's right, said Alex. You don't listen to this concert. You watch it. Now, pay attention. As conductor moved his arms, he molded the air like handfuls of soft clay, and the musicians carefully followed his every direction. What are they playing? asked Tak, looking up inquisitively at Alex. The sunset, of course. They play it every evening, about this time. They do? said Milo quizzically. Naturally, answered Alex, and they also play morning, noon, and night, when, of course... It's morning, noon, or night. Why, there wouldn't be any color in the world unless they played it. Each instrument plays a different one, he explained, and depending, of course, on what season it is and how the weather's to be, the conductor chooses his score and directs the day. But watch. The sun is almost set, and in a moment you can ask Chroma himself. The last colors slowly faded from the western sky, and as they did, one by one the instruments stopped, until only the bass fiddles and their somber slow movements were left to play the night, and a single set of silver barrels brightened the constellations. The conductor let his arms fall limply at his side and stood quite still as darkness claimed the forest. That was a very beautiful sunset, said Milo, walking to the podium. 
It should be, said the reply. We've been practicing since the world began. And, reaching down, the speaker picked Milo off the ground and set him on the music stand. I am Chroma the Great, he continued, gesturing broadly with his hands. Conductor of color, maestro of pigment, and director of the entire spectrum. Do you play all day long? asked Milo when he had introduced himself. Ah, oh, yes, all day, every day, he sang out, and then pirouetted gracefully around the platform. I rest only at night, and even then they play on. What would happen if you stopped? asked Milo, who didn't quite believe the color happened that way. See for yourself, roared Chroma, and he raised both hands high over his head. Immediately, the instruments that were playing stopped, and at once all color vanished. The world looked like an enormous coloring book that had never been used. Everything appeared in simple black outlines, and it looked as if someone with a set of paints the size of a house and a brush as wide could stay happily occupied for years. Then Chroma lowered his arms. The instruments began again and the color returned. You see what a dull place the world would be without color? He said, bowing until his chin almost touched the ground. But what pleasure to leave my violins in a serenade of spring green or hear my trumpets blare out the blue sea and then watch the oboes tinted all in warm yellow sunshine. And rainbows are best of all. And blazing neon signs and taxi cabs with stripes and the soft muted tones of a foggy day. We play them all. As Chroma spoke, Milo sat with his eyes open wide, and Alex, Tock, and the humbug looked on in wonder. Now I really must get some sleep, Chroma yawned. We've had lightning, fireworks, and parades for the past few nights, and I've got to be able to conduct them. But tonight's sure to be quiet. Then, putting his large hand on Milo's shoulder, he said, be a good fellow and watch my orchestra till morning, will you? And be sure to wake me at 523 for the sunrise. Good night, good night, good night. With that, he leaped lightly from the podium and, in three long steps, vanished into the forest. That's a good idea, said Tak, making himself comfortable in the grass. The bug grumbled himself quickly to sleep and Alex stretched out in midair. And Milo... Full of thoughts and questions, curled up on the pages of tomorrow's music and eagerly awaited the dawn. So I really hope that y'all are enjoying this. Like, this is a book of color and wonderment, and I know that it's not ratchet, and I, I, I told y'all not everything was going to be ratchet, but I know starting off with Old Thought Next Door and then The Coldest Winter Ever, just kind of an abrupt change. But I hope y'all are liking it. Um, I'm really enjoying this book. And I am almost halfway through it. And I don't think that um, that's the same halfway that I thought when I was reading The Coldest Winter Ever and I got 75% of the way done with the book and then it just stopped. So let's keep going. Again, 916-633-1537. Uh, um, you can leave a review at um, wherever you listen to the podcast at. Um and you can hit us up on Twitter at Ratchet Book Club. Um, our email address is um, wretchedandratchet at gmail.com. I really do appreciate y'all listening. And thank you so much for taking time out.
Um, I do want to thank Eric the Who for uh, leaving a review. Uh, they said, I found this through hindsight and had to subscribe to the official page. Excellent reading and selections. Great insight mixed with hilarious moments, too. Derek has something great on his hands with the Ratchet Book Club. Happy I found it. Five out of five. Keep going. Peace. That means a lot to me, Eric. Thank you so much. Um, because I thought I was doing a horrible job, to be honest with you. I didn't even think that I was hitting things right or uh, that things that were important were really being carried through. It is way harder to read out loud than it is to read to yourself. Like, there's words that I thought I knew when I said them in my head, but now I know that I don't. And the beauty of being where we are now, like, what a time to be alive. You know, I can look them up on Google or whatever, and it'll actually tell me how to say the word and then give me time to pronounce the word until I got it right. Um, for example, there was a word that was uh, in the book earlier, promontory. And promontory is a high point of land that juts out into a large body of water. It's similar to a point, a cape, or a head, or a horn. Um, this book uses words that may be big, and I promise you, if I run across some that I don't know, I'm going to let you know that I, I, that's what it was. Because, yeah, I didn't know what a promontory was at all. But if y'all ever have questions about what a word is, just type it on Google. Because one thing that Google has is this uh, indicator that says learn to pronounce the word. And so with promontory, I didn't know how to say the word. And so I hit the learn to pronounce button. And what it did was this. It makes you like pronounce it. And, and it's so it says it slowly. Uh, so then you can hear it. And then it makes you say it back to it. And I think that's really cool. Um, because there's a lot of folks, myself included, who and if you're a reader, you're probably in the same book. <laughs> same book. <laughs> if you're a reader, you're probably in the same boat. Um, I like in the same book, though. You're probably in the same book, which is you say a word that you've read for so long, you're confident in it because you've been reading it for so long. But then when you say it out loud, it's not said correctly. And people are like, that's not how you say that word. And you're like, but that's the way it's always sounded to me in my head when I read it. Reading is such a solitary pleasure. Like, we don't get too many opportunities to read with one another out loud. And and reading out loud, honestly, is as nerve-wracking as praying out loud in the church full of pious Christians who talk about you behind your back once you leave and don't want you wearing clothes they don't like and really just have problems with everything. But I digress. So reading out loud to y'all and knowing that I'm doing an okay job means a whole lot to me. Thank you so much, Eric. I really do appreciate it. Um, again, let other folks know about the show, share the show with your friends. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. And y'all have a great day. Peace. Intro and outro to Ratchet Book Club 
is by that kid Garan, and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name, and you slip.